Yay old man. Welcome to the first proper episode of Yay, Nay or Ma of 2022, where I recount my first cinematic trips of the year. My name is Colin Gacy, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England, and I am the host of this here little podcast. In this episode, I will be talking about the cinematic releases Licorice Pizza. Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, a biopic of a quirky late Victorian artist, and also The Tragedy of Macbeth, the latest version of the legendary Shakespeare play, only a few years after the last cinematic version, but this one has been done by Joel Cohen starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, so very interesting cast there. I also found the time to catch up with another couple of streaming films. On Amazon Prime video, I have watched Aaron Sorkin's biopic of Lucille Ball, Being the Ricardos, and on Netflix, I've managed to catch up with the Italian international feature shortlisted Oscar contender, The Hand of God. So that's five films in total to review for the first proper show of the year. And without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Big Screen Licorice Pizza is the latest film from legendary American director Paul Thomas Anderson. I think if you ask the question, who is the greatest living American director, it's a very short list of potential answers to that question, and I think Paul Thomas Anderson is on that list. He has many prestigious pictures in his past, including Boogie Nights, Magnolia, There Will Be Blood, The Master, Inherent Vice, and my personal favourite, Phantom Thread. It's actually shocking to realise that Paul Thomas Anderson has never won an Oscar. But, uh, yeah, sometimes you just slip through the cracks, like Martin Scorsese did for all those years. I mean, how he did not win for Raging Bull is beyond me. But anyway, Paul Thomas Anderson is a legend. And for his latest film, He was inspired by a couple of things. He was driving past a school in Los Angeles one day where he noticed one of the teenage boys flirting with a photographer's assistant who was just there to take photos for the yearbook. And Paul Thomas Anderson started wondering what would happen if this teenage boy started an actual relationship 
with an older girl or woman. And he combined that with some stories that were told to him by his friend, the producer Gary Goatsman, who grew up in the San Fernando Valley in the 1970s. So combining these two things together, we end up with Licorice Pizza, in which a teenage boy, played by Cooper Hoffman, the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman, making his acting debut, is a teenage boy and former or still current child actor who does start flirting with the older Alana Heim from the band Heim, who Paul Thomas Anderson has directed music videos for in the past, and Heim, who are the three Heim sisters, all appear in the film as Alana's sisters, as do their mother and father appear as their mother and father in the film. So he didn't just cast Alina Heim, he cast the whole damn family. But anyway, this 15-year-old boy, Cooper Hoffman, is flirting with this 25-year-old woman, Alana Heim, and tries to start a relationship with her. His child acting career appears to be on the wane, there's a scene where he goes in for a child audition with casting agent Maya Rudolph, the partner of Paul Thomas Anderson, who is in basically all his films. But after this audition for a child acting role doesn't go particularly well, Maya Rudolph says, hey, do you mind reading this? And it's an ad read for a spot cream company. So it seems that his acting career is on the wane. But with the money he's already made, having appeared in films with a rather monstrous character played by Christian Ebersole, who we see, and is apparently inspired by Lucille Ball, which is kind of weird, particularly since I'm going to be reviewing a biopic of Lucille Ball later. But after these child acting experiences, he does have a little bit of money and he starts investing in businesses in a waterbed company, during which he delivers a waterbed to Barbara Streisand's boyfriend, John Peters, played by Bradley Cooper, in a very over-the-top, very aggressive way. And apparently, John Peters himself did allow his name to be used, despite coming across as a total monster. But yeah, that was interesting when I heard that. But anyway. Through series of misadventures and series of wheeler-dealer businesses that he tries to start, you know, this waterbed company, a, a pinball parlour, Cooper Hoffman continues trying to get into the affections and remain in the life of the older Alana Heim. But will they end up together despite the difference in age? So I wasn't really sure what type of film I was watching as I was watching Licorice Pizza. Is it a film about your first crush? Is it a film about realising you're not mature enough for love? Is it a tragedy? I mean, there are several places in several different ways that major characters could have ended up dead, and it would have felt dramatically and narratively 
proper? Is this about the loss of innocence? Or is it a genuine first love story? Do we want these characters to end up together despite their differences in age? And I mean, the real life ages are even wider apart than in the film. As best I can tell, Cooper Hoffman was 17 when this was filmed and Alana Heim was 29. So the gap's even wider in real life. And do we want these people to end up together? And I'm not sure the answer is always yes. Cooper Hoffman comes across as a little bit of a problematic character. He has huge amounts of self-confidence, which I suppose you need when you are a child actor. He has a little gang of people who hang around him, and eventually Alana Haim comes past of this because you know, she doesn't want to be a photographer's assistant for the whole of her life, but she doesn't know what she does want to do. So, hey, let's just hang out with this 15-year-old and his friends because I like hanging out with him. And he has good ideas, like having a waterbed company in the 1970s and taking advantage of pinball becoming legal in California in the 1970s. And it's weird to consider that there was a point in Californian history when pinball was illegal. But this wheeler-dealer, hustler, businessman, even though he's you know, 15, 16 years old, wants to take advantage of this. Uh, and it's exciting hanging around him and you know, it delivering a waterbed to... John Peters, and that doesn't go well, which leads to an extraordinary scene involving a truck driving downhill, which I won't entirely spoil, but apparently Alana Heim actually did a lot of that. She learnt to drive a truck for this film, and I'm just enormously impressed with that. But it does highlight the fact that as fun and adventurous as it is hanging out with this 15-year-old kid, there are points where he's just really, really immature. He has a somewhat problematic attitude to women. He has kind of male entitlement dripping off him, which I think is a comment more about the attitude and culture of the 1970s than this particular kid but still through modern eyes i don't think this kid's approach to women is particularly healthy or appropriate and alana heim can see that as well as you know liking to hang out with this and having fun and even possibly maybe being attracted to him even though you know there's 10 years age difference she's really not sure how to handle this and honestly, I'm not sure the film knows how to handle this problematic attitude either. The film comes to a conclusion. It's a beautiful final shot. It's a beautiful final idea. It's the culmination of everything we have wanted to come by the time the film ends. But the film doesn't end there. There's one tiny little scene after 
the big dramatic glory shot from the end with a line of ADR which in my mind was specifically added to stave off questions about the sexual politics of this film. I think it would be easy to criticise the sexual politics of Licorice Pizza, as I have indeed just done, but I think there would be a lot of protests, or potentially there could have been a lot of protests about the central relationship in this film. So Paul Thomas Anderson made absolutely sure that the audience knew where everybody stood by adding this extra line of ADR dialogue in an extra unnecessary scene right at the end, which kind of spoils the climax of the film, and I think is actually kind of disappointing, because like I said, there is a perfect glory shot, which would be perfect as the final image of the film, and yet we have this extra little bit right at the end, which doesn't fit, and in my mind isn't necessary, or, or at least is not necessary enough that it needed to spoil the end of the movie so that was disappointing but I I do appreciate the fact that Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to make absolutely clear the emotional state of all the characters by the end of the film but it still didn't fit and I do kind of believe the relationship between these two people I mean like I said I'm not always 100% sure whether I want them to end up together, but the way they interact with each other, you do see a certain level of chemistry, but is it enough chemistry to cross that societally imposed barrier of that 10-year age gap? This does turn into that kind of relationship where you are absolutely determined, no, I am not his girlfriend, we are not in a relationship with each other, and yet you still get insanely jealous of that person hanging out with somebody else. It's that kind of complicated relationship. And like I said, on occasion, through modern eyes, there are problematic aspects of the entitled way that Coop Hoffman interacts with women. But at the end of the day, the heart wants what the heart wants. And despite all the issues, despite all the red flags, Alana Haim continues to hang out with Cooper Hoffman, who I actually think is a decent actor. I mean, there are certain shots where he looks scarily like his dad, but for most of the film, he's just a decent enough child actor who is clearly still young. I mean, he does have acne on his face. And I think if acting is something that Cooper Hoffman wants to pursue, I think. He does have a future in it. But weirdly, he is not the only child of a famous person in this film. Looking through the credits, there are a lot of second-generation people in this film. Steven Spielberg has two daughters in this film. The son of the late Ted Demi is in this, the less famous Demi, but still a talented director in his own right. The son of legendary composer Michael Giacchino is in this. 
and looking through the credits, also the children of several Hollywood producers as well. And it appears that Paul Thomas Anderson just went round his Hollywood neighbourhood and said, hey, do you want to be in my film? Do you and your kids want to be in my film? Which is interesting, but the fact you've got two Spielbergs in this, as well as Paul Thomas Anderson and Maya Rudolph's four kids are all in this, and most of these roles don't actually have character names, so it's basically extras and background people and minor, minor roles. But he just got his friends and family together in order to make this film, which is kind of interesting. And weirdly, also, Leonardo DiCaprio's dad is in this as well for a brief moment. So that's strange. But yes, Cooper Hoffman is a talented actor if that's something he wants to pursue. Alana Haim is also very, very good. I mean, I'm passingly familiar with the band Haim. I have come across them once or twice on YouTube. I mean, as I said in the last episode, I am not a follower of modern music. You know, popular music just doesn't have any interest for me anymore. But I like Haim. But again, if she wants to do the occasional acting role, I think she's certainly got the chops. And I love the fact that her entire family got cast in this film. But yeah, I think... This is Paul Thomas Anderson working at his own incredibly high level. This is a film I really, really enjoyed. The script is excellent. I will be very surprised if it doesn't get nominated or indeed win for Best Original Script. Maybe that will be Paul Thomas Anderson's first Oscar win. The ways that the 1970s is evoked, I mean, I, I was thinking all these things which are major parts of this film, you know, waterbeds, pinball machines, Japanese food, you know, the exoticism of going to a Japanese restaurant. It struck me that these are very, very 70s things to build your film around. It was only later I realized that it's actually this was the life of Paul Thomas Anderson's friend Gary Goatsman, but it evokes the time and place of the 1970s very well. It has this relationship between two young people in all its complicated glory. You know, the push and the pull, you know, this is a good idea, this is a bad idea. I mean, the push and pull of everything going on there. That's handled very well. The acting all around is excellent. And I think Licorice Pizza is a film I really, really admire. So for me, it was a good way to kick off the year. This was the first film I watched in 2022, which was a hell of a lot better than the first film I watched in 2021, which was The Gentleman. But it probably can't beat the first film I watched in 2020, which was The Favourite. But anyway, Licorice Pizza was my first film of the year, and it started a very, very high standard. For me, Licorice Pizza, still available in cinemas, is a yay. Then we come to the British film The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, which is a film which has been produced in part by Amazon Studios, so I think in two weeks' time, at time of recording, it will be ending up on Amazon Prime, and that will be probably the most convenient place to watch it. But in the meantime, it has been given a cinematic release. 
and it does sound very, very interesting. It is directed by Will Sharp, who has worked a lot on television as both a director and an actor, actually, and has frequently worked with Olivia Coleman, who acts as an omniscient third-person narrator for this film, The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. Well, Sharp directed the Olivia Coleman projects Flowers and Landscapers for television, and Landscapers was actually pretty good, I thought. But this is a biopic of a late Victorian slash Edwardian illustrator, Louis Wayne, who was a very talented and very fast illustrator, played in the film by Benedict Cumberbatch. But throughout his life, he had mental difficulties. He was always, quote-unquote, eccentric. And through modern eyes, he probably had some form of schizophrenia. But he was an enormously successful illustrator who created an entire world populated by cats. And at least according to the narrative of this feature film, it was his pictures of cats which popularised the cat as a domestic pet, rather than just something to get rid of all the mice around. So this is the story of this famous illustrator who was enormously popular in his time, although not enormously successful because he made financial decisions which were bonehead stupid but you know he wasn't a businessman so he is struggling to survive despite the fact he is a very very successful illustrator for the london illustrated news whose editor played by toby jones is his most frequent commissioner and basically keeps hearth and home together when he doesn't really need to. But Louis Wayne is financially and societally responsible for his five spinster sisters who live in this ramshackle house in West London, much to the exasperation of the eldest of these sisters, Andrea Riseborough, And not particularly able to cope with this large household, Andrew Riseborough throws her hands up and says, right, the youngest children need to be educated, the youngest sisters need to be educated, we need to hire a governess. So a governess is hired to live in this household and teach the three smallest children. And for the first time when Louis Wayne, Benedict Cumberbatch, sees this governess, played by Claire Foy, the first stirrings of romantic attraction start. And a relationship starts between this brilliant but damaged illustrator played by Benedict Cumberbatch and the somewhat reserved but accepting figure of Claire Foy. And as this relationship develops, it's scandalous, not because Louis Wayne has mental health issues but because Claire Foy is of a different class to the gentleman Louis Wayne. So there are obstacles put in the way of their relationship, 
both by society and by the disapproving voice of Louis Wayne's sister, Andrea Riseborough. But still, they move to the country and they adopt a cat who shows up in their garden, mewing pathetically under a rain-soaked bush. (laughs) That's exactly how our cat, Matilda, showed up two years ago. And unfortunately, the day after I saw Louis Wayne, she's disappeared and at time of recording still hasn't come back. So I'm not holding out much hope that she's ever coming back. But anyway, finding this pathetic cat under a bush in the rain sparked something in Louis Wayne and he starts making pictures of this cat, Peter. And with the encouragement of Claire Foy, he starts making lots of these pictures, but tragedy is just around the corner, professionally, personally, societally. And it ends up that Louis Wayne spends the majority of the latter half of his life in an asylum, but still making these pictures of cats. It's always interesting when we have a biopic of a fascinating figure from history who you have never, ever heard of. Louis Wayne was enormously successful and enormously popular in the late 19th and early 20th century. His cat pictures were everywhere, and he was famous off the back of it. But, because he never bothered to copyright his images, he was never a financial success, despite being incredibly famous and incredibly popular. And that's just one of the many, many things which are troubling about the life of Louis Wayne. Having this responsibility, I mean, in the late Victorian period, he is the man of the house. He needs to provide for his bohemian mother and his exasperated spinster sisters. I mean, Andrew Reesborough has the weight of the world upon her shoulders. She is the responsible one. She is the clever one. It should be her who should be in charge of the family, who be trying to you know, keep hearth and home together. But she's a woman, and she deeply, deeply resents this, and particularly resents the fact that you know, it would be a good idea if you, Louis, and me and my sisters married well, married for money, and yet you want to run off with this commoner, this penniless, governess commoner. So, I mean, Andrew Roseborough is a somewhat bitter, somewhat angry figure at the centre of this. She doesn't particularly treat her brother well. She doesn't particularly treat Claire Foy well, or the relationship between them well. And it's interesting that she's kind of the only one. Everybody else accepts, or, or mostly accepts, Louis on his own terms. I mean, he is a strange, strange person, but he's very talented and he's kind of nice. So he has friends around him like Toby Jones, like 
Asim Chowdhury is one of the people who he hangs around with a lot, playing fellow illustrator Herbert Railton. I mean, this is a film which has not only colour-blind casting, but also nation-blind casting. Richard Ayawadi is in one scene as the legendary composer Henry Wood, the founder of the Proms concert. Taika Waititi shows up as Max Case, an American newspaper editor. And H.G. Wells, who, when Louis Wayne was struggling towards the end of his life, made a radio appeal on behalf of Louis Wayne, is being played by the very, very Australian Nick Cave. So, yeah, some interesting casting choices in this, but it it adds to the fantastical elements of this, to the artificial elements of this. There are fantasy sequences. There are, as you might expect, images which kind of look like illustrations, which gradually move up and have been animated. There are certain scenes from the perspective of Louis Wayne, from the fractured mind of Louis Wayne. There's a particular scene where he looks around and everybody has the head of a cat. There's staged elements to it. It's a phantasmagoria of strange images and ideas. There's one sequence which is literally a kaleidoscope. It's a kaleidoscope of different lights and colours and voiceovers from things we've we've seen already in the film. I mean, it, it's as good a demonstration as I think I've seen of genuine mental illness. You can see throughout the course of his life that Louis Wayne gets worse and worse and worse and his problems become stronger and stronger and harder and harder to ignore. There's one point where he actually thinks he can talk to cats and there are subtitles for what the cats are saying. When I think of the line, I like jumping, it just makes me smile. I mean, there are so many cute cats in this. I mean, if you're a cat lover, then this might well be the film for you. But at the same time, it is a little hard going because ultimately, this is a tragedy. There is nothing that goes right for Louis Wayne or his family or his wife, or eventual wife, Claire Foy, during the course of this film. It's a tragedy. Even when he is you know, famous and popular, he's not rich. He is constantly struggling throughout the entire course of his life. And on a certain level, that's just really, really hard to see. I mean, ending up in a mental asylum for the last 20-odd years of his life. That's hard to process. But it's still a film with elements of joy, elements of wonder, elements of eccentricity. But it is it is a film I liked. I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch is excellent in this. I mean, it's been a really, really good 18 months or so for Benedict Cumberbatch. 
he is probably going to get a nomination and it will be a deserved nomination as best actor for the power of the dog i mean that's a very subtle very nuanced performance in the power of the dog but i think the more extravagant the more loud performance of Benedict Cumberbatch in this film, The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, is equally as impressive. And thanks to the pandemic, earlier in the year, we had another Benedict Cumberbatch performance in The Courier, which I think was a decent enough film, and the very reserved, very stoic performance that Benedict Cumberbatch puts in in The Courier is equally impressive. So. In quick succession, we've had three Benedict Cumberbatch leading performances, all with very, very different aspects of his character, and all equally impressive. So, yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch has had a good year, even though technically it's over two years, but he remains one of the great actors. I also think that Claire Foy and Andrew Riesborough are also excellent in this film as is the direction of Will Sharp. I think his inventiveness, his subversive attitude in certain places. I mean, as I said, he got his friend Olivia Coleman to provide a voiceover for this film. And I think the first line of dialogue or, or the first speech in this film is from this third-person omniscient narrator who basically says the Victorian era smelled like shit. And that's one of the first lines of dialogue in the film. Claire Foy's very first line of dialogue is, for fuck's sake. So this is a film with a subversive bent, with an anachronistic bent. It's a film which is trying to show you the extravagance and the wonder of this life uh, and this relationship not having the staid steady boring chamber piece that this so easily could have become i mean merchant ivory could have done this and it would have been a good film but it wouldn't have been this film showing the the mental torment of this character would have been one thing but here showing the eccentricity the life the wonder of it I think it comes across really well. So I think for some people it will be a little bit hard going. But equally, I think the exuberance, the joy in life that this demonstrates is something to hold on to. And I did like it. So for me, The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, which might still be in cinemas, but very quickly will be showing up on Amazon Prime Video, is a yay. And then we come to the tragedy of Macbeth, which has been given a limited, a very limited cinematic release. I had to go over to the watershed in order to see this before. I don't think it is yet, but it will soon be available through Apple TV+. This is the latest version of the classic Shakespearean tragedy. This one directed by Joel Cohen who for the first time is directing a feature film without any involvement at all from his brother Ethan. Apparently Ethan 
is spending time focusing on the theatre. So Joel Cohen is directing this feature film alone. And unsurprisingly cast his wife Frances McDormand as Lady Macbeth, as he so often does. And Macbeth is being played by Denzel Washington. In a very, very stylized black and white portrayal of the classic Shakespearean tragedy. I mean, I'm sure we know the plot, but so we're all on the same page. Scottish Lord Macbeth, travelling home from battle, is confronted by three witches who tell him that he will eventually become king. When Macbeth tells his wife, Lady Macbeth, this situation, she whispers in his ear and encourages him to actually kill the king in order that Macbeth shall become king. Go make sure this prophecy is fulfilled. And once the bloody deed is done, the guilt and the trauma of having killed not only your king but also your cousin for the sake of glory, it starts weighing on the mind of both Macbeths. And Macbeth starts going crazy and loses everything in battle, and Lady Macbeth goes completely off her rocker and commits suicide. So, yeah, typical Shakespearean tragedy. Which, in this particular case, has been shot in a very, very particular way. One of the famous, or perhaps notorious, filmed versions of Macbeth is one that Orson Welles directed in 1948. I mean, Orson Welles made his name with very stark, very stylized stagings of Shakespeare's plays. And Welles's version of Macbeth was in black and white, and it was clearly inspired by the German expressionistic movement, with your long shadows and minimalist production design. I mean, that was known as the expressionistic version of Macbeth. Wells's version has absolutely nothing on Joel Cohen's version. This is so inspired by German expressionism. The high contrast shadows on this, the stark black and white, the very, very minimalist production design. This is a hyper-stylized version of this play. I mean, even the three witches are being played by one actress, Catherine Hunter, who is basically acting as a contortionist, moving herself into different places, into different shapes, playing these three different characters. And when Macbeth and Banquo come across her, she is reflected in such a way that in a pool in front of her, it looks like it's three people. Very, very interesting way of doing it. And also, I mean, her transforming it into crows. The use of sound in this is very important as well, as well as the use of light and this high contrast black and white shadows. The courting of crows becomes a constant noise in the background. The knocking on doors. I mean, which is such a, a strong part of 
Macbeth and you know the porter scene is in this albeit in a very shortened form there's also the ringing of bells you know and people constantly talking about the sounds they are hearing or are they are they hearing the sounds or not and the the strange the weird literally the weird elements of this the fantastic elements you know this clearly mystical witch or witches figure and answering one of the major questions in any staging of Macbeth in a really interesting way. One of the fundamental decisions that any director, whether on the stage or on the screen, has to answer is do you show Banquo's ghost on stage? You could do it in such a way you put the Banquo actor in sort of like white makeup and have him appear in front of him. Or it could just be, you know, I see him and nobody else does. You could do it either way. What Joel Cohen decided to do is a kind of a halfway house. For most of that scene, you know, where Banquo's ghost is you know, making Macbeth say things he probably shouldn't say, he's not there. But we do see a glimpse of him going past. So. He basically has his cake and eats it, and having this fantastical, this mystical element, genuinely there, but only there for a moment, is fascinating. And also the way that the second encounter with the Weird Sisters happens. I've never seen that done before either. And I like the fact that that sequence takes place after a title card which simply says, tomorrow, which I thought was a very interesting point for Shakespearean scholars and people who are familiar with the famous speech. So yeah, I mean, the staging of this, the mystical elements of this are fascinating, done in this very, very stylized black and white photography and in the narrow 4 by 3 aspect ratio. And despite this mystical, this supernatural aura of this film, it doesn't shy away from extreme and gory violence. I watched this in a relatively packed screen, you know, as packed as it can be, because The Wall's Shed has gone back to limited availability of seating. But there were audible gasps at certain points of the violence that we were seeing on screen. So, I mean, that's something to, to pay attention to and I think is a rather cool aspect of it. But this made me realise, well, it rather it crystallised something which I've long thought about the original play Macbeth. Now, I am speaking as somebody who does have an English A-level and I did study Macbeth for my English A-level. And indeed, at the Theatre Royal in Bath, I watched Derek Jacobi playing Macbeth, which was awesome. So I have studied Macbeth. And with this version in particular, it crystallised something which I've long thought, through all the filmed versions I've seen from that Derek Jacobi version I saw on stage, but particularly from this version, I'm about to make a rather controversial comment. I don't think Lady Macbeth is a well-written character. 
It has long been established that Lady Macbeth is one of the best female characters in Shakespeare. And I think that is more reflective of the state of 17th century theatre than it is of great literature through modern eyes. If you look at Lady Macbeth, I'm not denying she has some really, really great speeches. She has some really great interactions with Macbeth, you know, encouraging him to commit this violent act. But as a character, she has absolutely no arc. After those lines encouraging her husband to commit murder, she has very little to do. I mean, yes, she is trying to be the hostess in the Bankrose ghost scene. After that, she basically disappears until she suddenly goes mad and throws herself off the ramparts of the castle, off stage. So basically, we have this woman whose job it is to be the evil, manipulative woman and encourage her husband to commit murder. Then she has to be the caring wife to cover up her husband's infirmities. Then she suddenly, out of nowhere, has massive amounts of guilt and commits suicide off stage. That's not an arc. That's not a character. And through modern eyes, it's really, really troubling. And one of these lines in Macbeth that Lady Macbeth says has always always bothered me, right back to when I studied it for A-level. The line, or one of the lines, that Lady Macbeth says in the sequence where she is trying to encourage her husband to commit murder is, I have given suck and know how tender tis to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out. That is one of the lines that Lady Macbeth says to Macbeth in order to encourage him to you know, be bloody bold and resolute, as, as is another line of the, of the play. Now that is the only time that a child is ever mentioned for the Macbeths in this play. And it comes out of nowhere. Now, when I was studying Macbeth for my A-level, the teacher asked us, I mean, what does this line mean? What is it saying about the relationship with the Macbeths? What is it saying about the past of the Macbeths? And my response was, maybe it's just a good line. Maybe Shakespeare put it in because it's a good line. It doesn't have to mean anything more than that. And I was instantly shut down by my teacher. Because this was clearly not something which was on the approved analysis list if I wanted to pass my A-level. If I wrote an essay or included in an essay, maybe it's just a good line, clearly I hadn't been taught well enough. And that made me angry. I mean, I'm angry to this day, what, 20 plus years later. God, nearly 30 years, shit. But, um... (laughs) 
yeah, I, I, I'm angry to this day that that idea that maybe it's just a good lie wasn't responded to. And honestly, I think that's the only way to look at this line. I mean, what I've seen of Lady Macbeth, the fact that she's there, encourages her husband to murder, and then suddenly goes mad. That's just not a well-written character. And the, the existence of this babe, which isn't in the play, I mean, I believe in the Justin Kurtzel version starring Michael Fassbender, Marion Cotillard visits a grave at one point, and here in the Joel Cohen version, as Frances McDormand is going mad, she you know, mimes her arms going in the cradling position briefly. So I think we're supposed to believe that the death of a child is part of Lady Macbeth's psychological makeup, but that's not in the text of the play. I don't think the character of Lady Macbeth is a well-written character. Her dialogue, in places, is fantastic, but as a character, she doesn't have an arc, and she is not a strong enough part of the play. This is something I've thought in the back of my mind for decades, as I've, I've just intimated, but it really got hammered home when I watched this new filmed version of Macbeth. Because Joel Cohen did something rather interesting. By rearranging certain scenes and by re-emphasising certain things, a minor character called Ross, played in this filmed version by stage actor Alex Hassel, becomes a Machiavellian kingmaker working in the background. You see this minor character Ross making decisions and appearing in certain scenes, in certain silent scenes which aren't in the play, but you see him doing things, you know, manipulating the situation to his own ends, or to mysterious ends at least. Very much the machinations of something like Game of Thrones I mean, we in the modern era have become used to this kind of grand political backstabbing and making this minor character Ross capable of that. And it's him who seems to manipulate mostly this situation. And that, I thought, was a really, really interesting way of doing it. Even though, weirdly, Joel Cohen diminished the role that his own wife was playing in this film. Because the Lady Macbeth that Frances McDormand plays, it just isn't particularly there. I mean, even more than in usual adaptations of Macbeth. I mean, as I said, I do not think Lady Macbeth is a well-written character. But she's particularly not well-written or not a strong enough part of this filmed version. Which is a shame, because Frances McDormand is a great actress. I don't think she deserved her Oscar last year for Nomadland, but... Despite that, she's a fantastic actress. She's one of the great actresses of this generation, or maybe even past generations now. But she is great. I just don't think she's particularly great in this. I do think that Denzel Washington is good. His extravagant, over-the-top turn into a tyrant by the end of the film 
is interesting played. I mean, you know, the once the bloody deed is done, you can see that he's basically snapped. Yeah, and the Bankrose ghost scene, he he's saying far too much. He's doing far too much in that scene. You know, he, he, how are you going to keep this secret if that's what you're doing? It, it's loud. It's extravagant. It's over the top. And it works. I mean, in this kind of hyper-stylized situation with the stark black and white cinematography, the the narrow Academy ratio, it's a big performance. And I think you possibly needed a big performance. And Denzel Washington provides it. I think he is a very, very good Macbeth. And in general, I think the tragedy of Macbeth is an excellent film hyper stylized emphasizing things in interesting ways in ways i haven't seen done before you know the fact that ross is now such a major character the fact that the witches are being played by one person it's a fascinating take on this very very well known plot so yeah i think the tragedy of macbeth possibly still available in cinemas but available soon on apple tv plus is a very, very good adaptation. And for me, it is a yay. Home movies. Being the Ricardos is the latest film from legendary screenwriter and now increasingly frequent director Aaron Sorkin. He has won an Oscar for writing The Social Network and has also got nominated for Oscars for Moneyball, Molly's Game, and The Trial of the Chicago 7, as well as having early Hollywood success in his career with A Few Good Men and The American President. But forever and always, Aaron Sorkin will be the guy who created The West Wing. I maintain that the two best television shows of my life are Buffy the Vampire Slayer, despite what we now know about Joss Whedon's character, and The West Wing. I think they are television gold. But Aaron Sorkin has taken his status as perhaps the only truly famous person in Hollywood who is primarily known as a screenwriter, certainly now that William Goldman's died, but he's taken that status and more and more often he is directing his own scripts. He directed The Trial of the Chicago 7, and now he directs Being the Ricardos, a biopic of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, played in the film by Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem. This film documents a tumultuous week in the life of married couple Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. All at the same time, a famous radio journalist has publicly accused Lucille Ball of being a communist, and this is 1953 at the height of McCarthyism, so that's possibly a career killer. Also, a gutter tabloid has publicly accused Desi Arnaz of repeatedly cheating on his wife Lucille Ball, and 
Lucille Ball is pregnant for the second time, which will drastically interfere with the shooting of the enormously successful sitcom I Love Lucy. This is an era where you couldn't even say the word pregnant on television, and Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz on the show slept in separate beds. So, yeah, that was trouble, and all of this is happening at the same time. So will this marriage, will the show survive this tumultuous week in their lives? I've looked up the details of these three things which are all happening at the same time, and it appears that the pregnancy and the accusations of philandering did happen at the same time, but the communism thing was about a year later. So they have compressed, or Aaron Sorkin has compressed, these three dramatic incidents revolving around the shooting of I Love Lucy into the same week. And that is the structure of the film, or the main body of the film anyway, is the week of production, going from the table reads on Monday to shooting the actual episode on Friday and going through various stages of rehearsals and rewriting and blocking and all that kind of stuff that you need to do for a show which is performed in front of a live audience, as I Love Lucy was, an innovation which Lucille Ball insisted on and has become kind of standard in sitcoms since. I mean, Lucille Ball was an immensely important and powerful figure in the history of American television, of American comedy, particularly American female comedy. The fact that a woman and a Latino were starring in the most popular sitcom of the era, and possibly ever. I mean, as it says at the beginning of the film in A Modern Day Talking Head, which I will be coming back to, a successful television show today gets 10 million viewers, 15 million viewers. I Love Lucy was getting 60 million viewers on a regular basis. This was an enormously successful television show. So the fact that suddenly it starts being accused of being communist, suddenly she's pregnant, and you cannot show pregnancy on television or even say the word pregnancy. and that is true, even though Lucille Ball got pregnant and had a baby on the show, the word pregnant was never used. The 50s was a weird time period, but yeah, I mean, these are really, really big things. And also the fact that Desi Arnaz is accused of being a serial philanderer. And this marriage, which on screen is you know, the perfect marriage, the aspirational thing for the American middle class, in real life, it was a very, very different story. I mean, this passionate relationship that these two people had. I mean, again, in one of in a talking head at the beginning of the film, somebody says that if they weren't ripping their heads off, they were ripping their clothes off. I mean, it was that kind of tumultuous relationship. And how sustainable is that, particularly when you are doing this show together? So, yeah, I mean, the difference between reality and fiction and all of these things happening together at the same time in one week, 
it's a, a good setup, and I think all around the acting is excellent. I mean, Nicole Kidman playing Lucia Ball is excellent. The co-star of the film, you know, the couple who live next door and interact with the Ricardos. The man is being played by J.K. Simmons, who is bringing so much to this film. I love him in this film. He comes across as sort of like a, a very right-wing drunk. There's constant references to the fact it's 10am and he's been drinking. And his wife on the show is played by Nina Arianda, a, a very talented actress. I mean, I first saw her in the film Stan and Ollie, where she played Stan Laurel's wife. I thought she was very, very good in that. And she's very good in this. as the woman who is on this show and Lucille Ball insists that she doesn't lose weight, she doesn't make herself look more attractive because Lucille Ball is the glamorous one and she's supposed to be the every woman. And yeah, for the show, I guess that's true. But saying it to her face is perhaps not the kindest thing to do, particularly when you're supposed to be actual friends in real life. So I mean, the, the complex interplay between reality and the life on the show, all of that comes together, and it's done very, very well. But there are fundamental flaws with being the Ricardos, and at the end of the day, I, I don't think this is near the top of Aaron Sorkin's best work. To the extent, I, I don't think he actually deserves a nomination. He's probably going to get one for Best Original Screenplay. I don't think he deserves it in this case. The film opens with modern-day talking heads of the executive producer and the two writers of I Love Lucy from far in the future as old people talking about you know this tumultuous week, talking about the relationship between the Ricardos. And, okay, in principle... That's not a bad idea to structure this particular film. Having distance and context for what we are watching and having you know, extra information, extra biographical information or whatever from the future, from a, a remove, that's not a bad idea. But having these interstitials be in the format of talking head interviews that you might see in a documentary. What we need in that situation is naturalism. What we need is a documentary feel. And that is not what we are getting in these Talking Head interviews. I mean, Aaron Sorkin is a brilliant writer, but he has a very, very particular style. You know, intricate, detailed, dense talking. I mean, you know, the walking and talking, which was so notorious in the West Wing, and there's a couple of sequences here in Being the Ricardos. I mean, there's one particular one where Javier Bardem is trying to put out all these fires and all the people are following along behind him as he's just walking in and out of the set of I Love Lucy. I mean, the walking and talking is definitely there. But this intricate, detailed, dense, almost artificial writing, you know, the writing uh, that is too perfect. I mean, it's Everybody says exactly the right thing at exactly the right time. That's what Aaron Sorkin does. And when you try and put that kind of writing in the mouths of people who are supposed to be giving talking head interviews, who are supposed to have a naturalism to them, it just feels false. 
it doesn't feel organic and it needs to in order for that conceit to work. It feels like these are people reading a script or people who have learned a script, not people who are naturally talking to somebody interviewing them about the past. And even if you do accept this general conceit of these talking head interviews from the far future reflecting upon this week, that's not actually what happens because after the concept is introduced, we're having these three older people talking about, oh, what a week that was. After that point, what these future talking heads are mostly doing is flashing back or introducing the flashbacks to the start of the relationship between Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. These are the people who are introducing us to the entirety of the relationship and not just this week. So what was the point of doing it in the first place? I mean, if you're going to have future context and details about that particular week, the week that the film is about, that's one thing. But to use these future talking heads simply as a mechanism to introduce the flashbacks and introduce the stars of the relationship, it's not worth it, particularly when you have this inorganic writing style that Aaron Sorkin has. So that just didn't work. And there's another small scene which, in my mind, really, really didn't work. One of the criticisms which I laid at the trial of the Chicago 7, and basically the only criticism I laid at the trial of the Chicago 7, I believe it was one of my honourable mentions as Best Picture last year in my Top 10 show. I loved the trial of the Chicago 7, but the one issue I had with it was one particular speech where Eddie Redmayne's character is arguing with Sasha Baron Cohen, with Abby Hoffman. and. It struck me that the words that were coming out of Eddie Redmayne's mouth in 1968 were the perspective of future historians of the present attitude we have of Abby Hoffman, who in many ways was a pivotal figure in left-wing politics, but also is a very, very problematic figure, and in certain ways sent back the ideas of left-wing politics decades through his very ostentatious actions. And Eddie Redmayne basically saying that to Abby Hoffman with a future perspective, that stood out to me, I did notice that. And there's almost exactly the same thing which happens here in Being the Ricardos. At one point, Nicole Kidman, Lucille Ball, is having a conversation with the female writer on the show, played by the awesome Alia Shawkat, who I love. But Alia Shawkat is having a conversation about the writing of I Love Lucy. And she brings up the idea that she, as a woman, is trying her best to make Lucy on stage, Lucy Ricardo on screen, a rounded female figure instead of the infantilized version of femininity that Lucille Ball most commonly presents. I mean, Lucille Ball was a, an incredibly gifted physical comedian. The little I've seen of I Love Lucy, she was a very, very talented physical comedian. But Alia Shawkat, this writer, who again is supposedly a good friend of Lucille Ball, says, 
I'm trying to make you seem not so infantilized. And I did not buy that scene at all. For one thing, these are supposed to be two friends. I mean, Lucille Ball made sure that a woman was in the writer's room and this woman, Madeline Pugh, who is one of the older talking heads at the beginning of the film, uh, as played by Linda Lavin when she's older. But Madeline Pugh is supposedly a friend of Lucille Ball, and yet she has this confrontational discussion with her, which just doesn't sound like a conversation that would have occurred in 1953. This doesn't feel like a conversation between two friends in 1953. It doesn't sound like a conversation between employer and employee in 1953. What it sounds like is an editorial from Pajiba.com in 2021 being shoved into a film set in 1953. It feels like modern feminist criticism being put into the mouth of a character in 1953, which doesn't fit. Just like in The Trial of Chicago 7, modern political criticism was put into the mouth of Eddie Redmayne in 1968. Neither of those scenes work, and that's what Aaron Sorkin has done in his last two films. So, yeah, you get what you get with Aaron Sorkin. I do think he is an incredibly talented writer, but he does a very specific thing very well. And when you try and break out of that, when you try and have any kind of naturalism, any kind of authenticity, it falls apart or it tends to fall apart. And now his tendency to have modern viewpoints put in the mouths of historical figures. That didn't work for me either. So, yeah, I can't say this is an outstanding film. It doesn't seem to have been guessing wide critical acclaim. I'd be surprised if it got many Oscar nominations. I think Nicole Kidman might well get one. I think Best Original Screenplay might well happen. I also think that J.K. Simmons has a decent chance at Best Supporting Actor. And... I think in both the cases of Nicole Kidman and J.K. Simmons, I think the acting is excellent, possibly even Oscar nomination worthy. But as a film, it's got enough irritating flaws in it. And structurally, I think it's a mess. And there's enough things which are wrong with the structure of this film that I can't fully support it. So as far as I'm concerned, Being the Ricardos is an okay film. But it could have been better, and maybe Aaron Sorkin wasn't the right person to tell this story. So the film we get, which is currently available on Amazon Prime, as far as I'm concerned, is a solid, or reasonably high, meh. Netflix and chill. The Hand of God is the latest film from Paolo Sorrentino, available on Netflix, and it has been long-listed for the International Feature Oscar this coming year, which is the only reason I wanted to see it, because I repeatedly say I am not a fan of the work of Italian director Paolo Sorrentino, primarily because I hated the fact The Great Beauty won the Foreign Language Oscar, as it still was then, over 
The Broken Circle Breakdown from Belgium and The Hunt from Denmark, both of which I think are infinitely superior films to that rather self-indulgent film that The Great Beauty was. I also wasn't a fan of Paolo Sorrentino's English language film This Must Be The Place, starring Sean Penn. And I tried to watch his TV show, The Young Pope, but gave up. It just wasn't for me. Prestige television. So I tried to watch it, but it it just didn't do anything for me at all. So I repeatedly say that I do not like the work of Paolo Sorrentino, but that doesn't allow for the fact that he also directed the film Youth, a film starring Michael Caine, Harvey Keitel, Jane Fonda and Rachel Weisz, which I did actually really like. So there has been one thing that Paolo Sorrentino has directed which I have liked, which didn't make me eager to watch this new film, The Hand of God, but since it has ended up on the 15th film longlist for International Feature Oscar, I decided to watch it. I mean, this was what I watched on my way over to Bristol on the bus in order to watch the tragedy of Macbeth, even though it's such a long film that I didn't finish it even on the bus journey, so I had to finish it once I got home. But regardless, The Hand of God is an autobiographical film for Paolo Sorrentino, dealing with his youth growing up in the Naples of the 1980s, a Naples that was obsessed with the fact that the great Diego Maradona had signed for Napoli. And of course, that's where the title comes from, that infamous goal in the 1986 World Cup. And apparently, a lawyer representing Diego Maradona while he was still alive in the early days of production tried to sue this film for unauthorised use of the image and the life of Diego Maradona, even though he's just a background figure in the film, but I find that kind of interesting. But anyway, a teenage boy, an avatar for director Paolo Sorrentino, played by Filippo Scotti, is living life in Naples with his large, boisterous family, his father being played by frequent Sorrentino collaborator Tony Servillo, I find it kind of psychologically interesting that Tony Servillo, who is constantly intertwined with the career of Paolo Sorrentino, is now essentially playing his father. I think there's some psychology there, but regardless. Young Filippo Scotti has Tony Servillo as a father, Teresa Saponangelo as a mother, an older brother, Marlon Joubert, and a sister who we never see for reasons I'll get onto in a minute. And he also has a large, loud, boisterous Neapolitan family. But as tragedy strikes, young Filippo Scotti has to decide what to do with his life, how to deal with his issues, and what he will do with his life. And all throughout the course of this film you start getting the hints that the film industry is where Filippo Scotti wants to end up going. And of course he kind of did. So, as I said, I'm in general not a fan of Paolo Sorrentino because I think he has 
a level of self-indulgence which I'm uncomfortable with. He has a level of heightened reality which I'm often uncomfortable with. Very, very elaborate, very deliberate, distinct lighting, framing, content. The sheen of artifice which tends to appear on Paolo Sorrentino's work I'm not generally a fan of. And I thought I was in serious, serious trouble with the opening of this film, The Hand of God, because it is that heightened reality, very artificial lighting, very staged blocking, and prominently featuring a statuesque, a busty woman wearing a tight top with erect nipples, being front and centre in this very rigid, very stylized milieu. As the sequence progresses, we get taken to a, a mildly derelict building and there's a giant chandelier just lying on the floor, yet on. I mean, that's one of the publicity shots I've frequently seen for this film. And that's a theme which continues throughout the course of this film, is light sources, unusual light sources, right in the centre of a room where they shouldn't necessarily be. There are certain ticks and tricks that Sorrentino uses. But in this opening scene, it's a chandelier as this busty, attractive woman is brought into this mildly derelict house. I thought, oh God, here we go again. Sorrentino going off on his flights of fancy, you know, indulging in his proclivities. But it turns out there's a very specific reason why that character is in that situation in that way. It turns out that this is one of young Filippo Scotti's aunts, as played by Luisa Ranieri, and actually rather excellently played by Luisa Ranieri, I have to say, even though she's not in the film very much and it's a two-hour-plus film. But the impact that Luisa Ranieri has on this film cannot be underestimated, and there's a very deliberate, very distinct reason why that scene is shot in that way. And I thought, okay, Sorrentino, you have kind of got me. I kind of understand what you were doing there, or I appreciate what you were doing there. Throughout most of the film, there are levels of naturalism, which I do appreciate, even though in certain places, the artifice, the construction of the situation is brought to fair. The way that the actual Hand of God goal in the 1986 World Cup is presented in this film is very stylized, very constructed. Kind of cool, it has to be said, but very, very artificial. And I did find it interesting listening to the Italian commentary of the Hand of God goal. I mean, obviously, as an English person uh, and the crime being committed against the English football team. I'm very familiar with English reactions to that moment. But hearing the Italian reactions of the commentary team on Italian television, I mean, obviously using subtitles, but also the people watching the goal. I mean, there's one person who tries to justify it. I mean, this is the great Maradona who has just signed for Napoli and is going to save our football team. So his perspective is, he was fighting back against the Imperial English for the loss of the Malvinas. It's like, 
really. I mean, that's that's quite a leap <laughs> to justify a handball goal in that situation. But that's what we do because Naples was obsessed with Diego Maradona. He was a god. I mean, in the wake of Diego Maradona's death, they renamed the Napoli Stadium after him. I mean, all of this is documented in the excellent Asif Kapadia documentary, Diego Maradona. I highly recommend that. But it doesn't go too far to say that Diego Maradona was a god in Naples. He was a very, very big fish in a relatively small pond. And everything in Naples in the 80s was about Diego Maradona until he got banned for cocaine, but still. That is the background of this this story, as this kid's life unfolds, and as tragedy hits at about the halfway point of this film, we start to realise that, oh, this is a film about finding your place in the world, I mean, dealing with trauma, dealing with grief, trying to find where you belong, what you want, what where you are going, and that is what the film takes place in, as you know, he goes through various friends, he has friends and family members, he does have a sister who we never ever see because she's always in the bathroom, I mean that's a, a playful piece of artificiality I think from Paolo Sorrentino, I mean my guess is that his sister did take up a lot of time in the bathroom in this relatively small flat in Naples, but the fact that she is always in the bathroom is kind of funny and kind of noticeable after a moment, but layer of artificiality. And he sees various people and gets influenced and has discussions about various film directors. I mean, Franco Zeffirelli gets name dropped, Federico Fellini gets name dropped. There's a running gag that he never quite manages to put on the VHS tape he's got of Once Upon a Time in America by Sergio Leone. But the biggest influence as far as filmmaking goes is an Italian film director I must admit I'm not particularly familiar with, a guy called Antonio Capuano, who was very successful in the early 90s, making very, very harsh and gritty neo-realist films in the slums and street kids of Naples. So the timeline doesn't quite work. I mean, if this is supposed to be set around the 1986 World Cup, as far as I can tell, Antonio Capuano wasn't active in 1986. But his film, I mean, the fact that young Filippo Scotti manages to sneak onto a film set and it is Antonio Capuano's film set, and by the end of the film he meets Antonio Capuano, which I'm sure is actually based on reality of Paolo Sorrentino meeting this fellow Neapolitan film director in Antonio Capuano. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of the culmination of this film. I mean, it's not exactly the climax of the film, but this conversation between this sort of 16, 17-year-old kid, Filippo Scotti, and this working film director in Naples, Antonio Capuano, as played by Chiro Capano in the film, this is basically where the film has been going. I mean, this talk about filmmaking and philosophy and life. I mean, do you have a story to tell? How are you going to tell it? Is cinema the right format to tell your story? And as far as young Filippo Scotti and, by extension, writer-director Paolo Sorrentino, 
the answer is yes, I do have a story. And, you know, Paolo Sorrentino went on to a long and distinguished career as a director. But <sighs> it feels kind of mean saying this, but I'm not sure that there's enough story here to actually justify a film. I mean, yes, Paolo Sorrentino, through this fictionalised avatar, Filippo Scotti, did have a hard life, or certainly a very, very tragic incident in the middle of this film. And he did find his way through it, and eventually, you know, probably thanks to the influence of Antonio Capuano, became a film director. And that's fine. I just don't think it's enough for a film. Uh, Apparently, Paolo Sorrentino was inspired to make this film, or write this film, after he saw Alfonso Cuaron's Roma. Now, Roma is about Alfonso Cuaron's youth growing up in the Roma district of Mexico City. But it focuses on Alfonso Cuaron's maid, and her life, and telling her story and by extension, telling the story of Alfonso Cuaron. Here, Paolo Sorrentino essentially telling his own story. It's very, very important, very, very personal to him. I just don't think there's enough here for a film. Yes, seeing the tragedy unfold, seeing the directionless drift of this 16, 17-year-old boy, there is something there, but the fact that the end of the film happens before young Filippo Scotti has even started his career as a filmmaker, even started the process of getting there, it feels like just a drift through the youth of this kid, with the background of the, his personal tragedy, from the background of his large boisterous, occasionally problematic family, for the background of living in Naples in the era of Maradona. It's fine, it's there, but I just don't think there's enough here to truly justify a film being made. I mean, I didn't hate this film like I hated The Great Beauty. I certainly wasn't bored by it like I was for This Must Be The Place. But this film, I just don't think it's worth it. To me, it, it was clearly important to Paolo Sorrentino, but I just don't think it should and is important to a wider audience, particularly a wider audience outside Italy. So, yeah, it's a well-made film with occasional moments of grace, occasional moments of beauty, one or two profound ideas, but in general... I just don't think it's worth it. So a well-made film that had absolutely no connection to me personally or emotionally. So for me, The Hand of God, available now on Netflix, is a reasonably solid ah. Coming attractions. There are two cinematic films which I am interested in this week. First off is a film called Boiling Point, which I've actually already seen at time of recording. There was a special preview screening of it with an attached pre-recorded Q&A to it. 
and I realised that if I didn't watch that here in the Odeon in Bath, then I would have to make a special trip to Bristol next week in order to watch it. So I took advantage of that. And Boiling Point is rather good. And I will be giving a full review next week. It stars Stephen Graham as a chef who is having a very, very bad time of it. His wife has recently left him. Things are starting to slide at work, which are highlighted by the fact he's had a health inspector visit unexpectedly. The money people behind his restaurant are not as competent as they should be. One of his old friends slash rivals has unexpectedly shown up at his restaurant on the busiest night of the year. All his staff have various personal issues and problems, some of which are very distinct problems. It's a bad night. And all of this takes place in one take. It's a 90-minute film which takes place in this restaurant, and it's one entire take. And it's pretty cool. I mean, that kind of thing impresses me enough anyway. The way this particular film has to be done impresses me even more. I did like Boiling Points, and there will be a full review in the next episode. The other cinematic film I want to check out is kind of a brainless action movie, but it's kind of an impressive and inclusive action movie because it's a spy movie, a guns and action spy movie, with an entirely female cast. The 355 stars Jessica Chastain, Lupita Nyong'o, Diane Kruger, Penelope Cruz, and Bing Bing Fan. Being a kick-ass group of international spies from various different countries, all in pursuit of a superweapon which has gone missing. I mean, it sounds like pretty basic stuff, but all-female kick-ass cast, may as well give it a go. So yes, I will be checking out the 355. The only streaming film which has been added to the list this week is the Amazon Prime release, The Tender Bar, which is something of an Oscar contender because it is the latest film directed by George Clooney, but it's a film based on a memoir about a boy growing up without a strong father figure, so he ends up spending a lot of time at his uncle's bar, his uncle being played by Ben Affleck. And he grows up and learns life lessons at sitting as a kid in this bar and eventually goes on to success, I think, as, as a journalist or, or something. Seems like a similar kind of setup to Hillbilly Elegy, and that doesn't always work. And the critics have not been particularly kind to the tender bar, but it's still something of an Oscar contender because it's directed by George Clooney. So hopefully at some point I will be checking out the tender bar but I still have a lot of other, much more Oscar-basey stuff which I want to get to, including the Matthew Heinemann documentary The First Wave, which I'm not looking forward to because it's about New York hospitals during the first wave of COVID. And there's also a handful of streaming-released films which I do want to check out before I fully commit myself to my Top 10 Films of the Year show. There's the 
low-budget American drama about rape, What She Said. There's Daniel Brühl directing himself in the German film Next Door. There's the historical English indie movie Lapwing. And also the two-handed film The Great and Terrible Day of the Lord, which looks kind of interesting. Man and woman go away for a romantic weekend in a cabin, only for when they get there, the man says, you are going to die by the end of this weekend, and the only way to save yourself is if you start worshipping me because, you see, I'm God. So yeah, that sounds like it might be an interesting two-handed film, and I do want to check that out. On Netflix, there's not actually a great deal being released as far as feature films goes, which is fine by me since I've got so much to catch up with, including the Oscar Beatty film The Lost Daughter, Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut with Olivia Colman interfering and being reminded of her own problematic relationship with children. There's also The Starling with... Melissa McCarthy and Chris O'Dowd and Kevin Klein dealing with grief. That's a mildly oscar Beatty one, but an interesting director who I do kind of like, Theodore Malfi. And some other random stuff. I, I still want to check out the spooky movie Night Teeth, Collateral Only Vampires. The Italian movie Yara is increasingly becoming intriguing to me. A real-life crime story about a female prosecutor becoming obsessed with the disappearance of a 13-year-old girl in her small community. And there's also a youthful movie called Mixtape, in which an orphaned teenage girl tries to reconnect with her dead mother through a mixtape she finds, but when the tape breaks, she has to track down all the really obscure tracks which are on this mixtape and find connection with her dead mother. So that could be incredibly sappy, but I am kind of intrigued by mixtape on Netflix as well. So a reminder that it was actually a really, really good week at the cinema. I mean, in this sort of prestige Oscar Beatty time of year, the quality of the films tends to be pretty high, but to have three yays in the same week at the cinema, even in January, is something of a rarity, but that's what happened this week. Licorice Pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson's pay-on to youthful exuberance in the San Fernando Valley is incredibly well-written, with inexperienced but very naturalistic actors at the centre of it, and I really enjoyed Licorice Pizza, that's a yay. The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne is a somewhat heartbreaking, but inventive biopic of a tragic and somewhat unremembered figure in Edwardian life and I think Benedict Cumberbatch is excellent so yes the electrical life of Louis Wayne is another yay as is the tragedy of Macbeth. I've seen so many versions of Macbeth over the years I've read Macbeth myself in my school days I've never quite seen it done like this. I think Denzel Washington's Macbeth is wildly over the top, but it kind of fits. The fact that if you re-emphasise certain things, a background character suddenly becomes vital. Really interesting approach to this material. And I think directed exceptionally well in a very, very expressionistic way by Joel Cohen. So yeah, 
The Tragedy of Macbeth is a well-worn tale told in a really inventive, creative way. And I do think that's another yay. So a really good week at the cinema and Louis Wayne will be on Amazon presently and Macbeth will be on Apple TV Plus presently. So however you manage to see it, I think three good films there. And all that remains for me to say in this particular episode is this has been Yay Nay Omer presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I will see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. Ah!